0: hello thanks for listening to the total knee tips and pearls podcast this is adam rose and your host i'm a fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement in these episodes i'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs thanks for tuning in and on with the show Hello, and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen. You're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. So I recently did a case, um, and it was interesting, um, the questions that were brought up around this time of the case, and it's something that I have not done a lot of, um, but something I've done a fair number of over the years. Unfortunately, I do not believe so far that I have a large enough number to really... um, write a paper on. Um, And if you go looking, which I would suggest after listening to this is go do a basic lit search on PubMed, and you'll find there's a whole bunch of, you know, smaller type of studies and case reports. Um, And what I'm talking about is total knees, primary total knees, done for an acute um, tibial plateau fracture. So something that I think patients, or not patients rather, but you are more familiar with when we operate on patients is that we're used to doing distal femoral replacements for these severely shattered, you know, distal femur fractures in the elderly that already had arthritis. Um, but I'm not sure that people talk about treatment such as a total knee replacement as much on the tibial side. Um, so when have I done or used this? Um, You know, And I remember the first time that I did this, I had a a lady who was um, older, she had severe arthritis. She had been followed in rheumatology for years and prior x-rays and demonstrated pretty severe arthritis. So now she has this, and I would say 90% if not more of the patients that I've taken care of, it's all women um, that are hit from the side with a split or split more commonly split, split depressed lateral tibial plateau fracture in the setting of osteoarthritis. You know, so here you go, you got this older patient's got osteoporosis, probably had pre-existing osteoarthritis. And what are you going to do? You're going to open them up, um, you're going to elevate the joint, you're going to bone graft behind it, you're going to raft your technique and put screws in, maybe you can do it arthroscopically through a smaller window. And in any event, they already had arthritis and now you did an operation. They're protected weight bearing, they develop more pain and post-traumatic arthritis on top of their pre-existing osteoarthritis And now your next option is, okay, do I convert that to a total knee or do I do this in a two stage where I go in and take out the plate, take out the screws, let the skin and the soft tissue heal and then go back at a later date and do a total knee replacement. Because hopefully we all know that the outcomes of total knee replacements after big surgeries like that is less than optimal. So the thought process that I've always had is why not do the primary total knee as the initial surgery, And avoid all the other in-between stuff in the hopes that you get a better outcome. So things that I've done um, and things that I've seen over the years, because as I've done this more and more, I've become um, a little bit more open to the idea in patients maybe that don't have severe end-stage arthritis, but patients that may have mild arthritis um, or at an age where the progression of arthritis in the near future is going to be there, Um, And also patients that are going to have difficulty rehabbing through multiple surgeries. And even patients that are having difficulty really getting around and mobilizing in a non-weight-bearing status if you're going to treat them with ORIF. So one of the things that that I've done and what you'll notice in some of the studies, some are pretty aggressive and some go in fairly acutely. um, What I found is reasonable for me is six to eight to 10 weeks. Um, And what's nice is that the initial pain and swelling of the fracture. Um, you can treat initially with the typical compression, ice elevation, knee immobilizer. And then once the pain, swelling, and the soft tissue envelope tends to improve, then you have the option of starting into a hinge knee brace. And obviously we're talking about these, these are, for the most part, lower energy injuries. And the, the knee overall is grossly stable. Um, so we're not talking about taking care of a grossly unstable knee, but because of the split in the depression, um, it requires something done surgically. You know, we're talking about these that are depressed greater than a centimeter or a very large portion of the combination, um and split that may cause it diastasis in the joint. We're not talking about, you know, the small two, four millimeters of depression without a significant split. Treat those conservatively. They do fine. If they have arthritis, you deal with that down the road. Um, But what I start doing with these patients early on, though, is range of motion. Kind of thinking of it like an ACL, where someone tears their ACL, you don't rush in and do the ACL reconstruction when they still have limited range of motion. So that's the important thing I find early on, is trying to get these patients in a hinge knee brace after about two weeks and get the range of motion going. And the other beauty of this, as opposed to like the acute hip fracture that shows up in your ER, is that in this six, eight week interval, you have time to optimize the patient. So if someone needs to see their primary or needs to see cardiology, or you know they, they have some other workup that needs to be done, it gives you that luxury of being able to work all those things up and make sure that they're as optimized as possible for surgery, especially when it comes to nutrition. Checking things like vitamin D, albumin, prealbumin, you want to make sure all those are as optimized as possible. And then the other nice thing is that unlike the ORF, is that after these total knee replacements, you can weight bear as tolerated. So you get these patients up and mobilizing pretty much like a routine total knee. So what about at the time of surgery? So these are the things that you have to just plan for because for the most part, most of the time, if the ligaments are stable, and it's just a tibial plateau issue, you can go along with your regular femoral component, whether or not you do cruciate retaining or posterior stabilized. I would always recommend that you have some type of stabilized revision style femur just in case when you got in there, there were some additional issues that you didn't appreciate ahead of time and you needed some additional stability and constraint. But for the most part, I've gotten by with my primary femoral implant. The next thing on the tibial side, is deciding between press fit and cemented. Obviously, if you have a big fracture and you cement and pressurize, there is the chance of extravasation. I tend to be a cementer. Um, there's nothing wrong with press fitting, but with the delay 6, 8, 10 weeks, um, I find that the extravasation issue is not an issue at that point. Um, if you're press fitting, again, remember that you're dealing with somebody who has probably osteopenia or osteoporosis, which resulted in the fracture. And now they've been on non-weight-bearing status for an additional six, eight weeks or so. So they have additional disuse osteopenia. So there's that additional risk that as you're pounding this component into the bone, you could cause additional problems or damage. The big issue that I found with my older patients though is that a well-sized press-fit tibial stem Tends to leave them with tibial pain. Um, And the other issue, which is why in that patient population I tend to cement my stems, is that if I have to use an offset, um, I find it's a little bit more challenging to dial in the offset just right to get the tibial component to sit exactly where I want it on the top of the tibial plateau. Whereas if I placed the cemented stem slightly eccentric, and I'm really looking at where my fins are, where my base plate is on top, even if the stem is off a little bit, it kind of self seats itself in the cement mantle, and allows me to better and more accurately set the tibial component on top of the tibia, as far as anterior posterior medial lateral and rotation. Now, the next thing is you have to worry about, okay, well, what are we gonna do about the defect? Um, and what are we gonna do? So if I get in there, um, and once I've done my patella, my femur, and I'm doing the tibia, um, I've had a few where when you get in there, you put retractors, there, you can still see some hinging that it actually hasn't healed well enough and there's some hinging of where the fracture line is. So in that case, I'll use a rafter style technique. Typically I aim for six fives, but occasionally four o, oh, especially anteriorly, if you have a very small area where you need to get a screw in and not impinge on the fin or the keel or the, the uh, stem. But for the most part, I'll use some 6.5s just to basically hold that proximal tibia together. Um, And then the next decision that I have to make is, okay, here's my standard cut of what I would do on the tibia. So if I took an additional, say, two millimeters, does that completely remove my fracture and the defect? And if so, I'll typically take an extra two, just knowing that I'm gonna go up a little bit in the poly size. Now, if I take my tibia cut and the defect is significant, You know, the next thing I have to decide is whether or not this is contained or uncontained. So if I have a true contained defect, and it's quite small, in that older age population, most commonly what I'll do is just fill it with cement. If I have someone on the younger spectrum or a quite large defect that is contained, then I will impaction bone graft to kind of build that space up a little bit and then cement on top of that surface. The next thing is, what if you have an uncontained defect and the question is, you know, how much of that is missing? Most of the time in my hands, I tend to go to an augment. So I'll add a lateral augment and do my step cut and fill that in with the augment on that lateral side um, where it is most common. Again, the same holds true if it's on the medial side for whatever reason. You know, the other issue is whether or not you use cones or additional implants that will support your tibia based on the bony anatomy. So this again comes down to preference, what system you like to use. And again, the defect, you know, whether or not the defect is contained or uncontained. Um, And then I always stem this. And again, the stem length is going to be dependent on fixation um, and the fracture type and pattern. And once you've stabilized this with your stem and possibly your augment um, or your cone or your... um, Once you've done that and you have this nice stable construct, the beauty of that is that you're able to get this patient up standing and walking with weight-bearing is tolerated. So next time you see an older patient, especially a patient that has known osteoarthritis or osteoarthritis that you're seeing for the first time on x-ray and has a tibial plateau fracture that warrants some type of surgical intervention... You know, because anytime we see those fractures and you're up there, obviously the first option always is conservative care. You know, even if it meets criteria for surgery, based on the patient's desires and comorbidities, you always do have the option of conservative care. You know, the next option becomes some form of open reduction internal fixation based on how you do it is dealer's choice, based on your skills, technique, and the fracture pattern. But again, remember, in these older patients with osteoporosis with a Unstable displaced tibial plateau fracture, another treatment option becomes a primary total knee replacement. I consider this in a delayed fashion. We're doing this six, eight, 10 weeks down the road. Um, so something just to think about, because I find more often than not, you know, with any diagnosis that you learn in medical school, you're never going to make a diagnosis for a disease you never heard of. So if no one has ever done this and you've seen it or no one's ever talked about it or you haven't read about it, it may be one of these things that never even crossed your mind when you saw an older patient with arthritis and a tibial plateau fracture. Now you have. Now, I recommend that you do the next step and take your time and go on PubMed and pull up the articles and read through them and see the ins and the outs and all the details, what worked, what didn't work, what different authors and surgeons have done around the world for these options And then this becomes another treatment option that you're able to recommend the next time you're caring for a patient with that type of injury. So thanks again for listening. Um, If you have other residents colleagues that you think would enjoy and benefit from some of these podcast episodes, please forward this information on to them. And until you hear me next time, be safe. I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to Total Knee Tips and Pearls Podcast. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.